So as Elder Allen mentioned in his prayer, Pastor Jeff is away this week, so it's my privilege to bring the Word of God today, and I decided that I would like to speak on the topic of Jesus, the Son of God. And it's a little bit more of a topical sermon than expositing one particular passage, but I did choose two passages from the Gospel of Matthew that I would like us to start off with to um, focus our thoughts on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you are able, would you please rise as we hear the Word of God from Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, and Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may be seated. So my sermon today is about one of the most important and crucial elements of the Christian faith, and that is our confession that Jesus is the Son of God. When we recite the words of the Apostles' Creed, we say, we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, or as we'll do later on in the service, after the sermon, the Nicene Creed, which says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. There are three main titles for Jesus in the New Testament that are also reflected in those creeds. Christ, Son, and Lord. He's the Christ. He's the Anointed One. He's God's Messiah. He's the Savior. He's also the Lord. He's been exalted to God's right hand as Lord over all creation. And it would be great if we could look at all of those titles today, but I just want to focus on this this one here that I think is somewhat neglected, and that is that He is the Son of God. As we'll see, the reason it is so important is because it is one of the key ways that the New Testament speaks about the deity of Christ. I don't know if you recall, but uh, there was a 19th century philosopher slash theologian. I don't know if you really call him a theologian, but his name was Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's the father of transcendentalism. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He was a Unitarian. That means he believed that 
There was no Trinity, but just this one being called God, and Jesus was merely a man who was perhaps more in tune with his deity, but not in anything different from what you and I could experience. We also can be in tune with our deity too, just the way Jesus was. So he wasn't the son of God in any unique sense. Well, Emerson, he called the church's confession that Jesus is the divine son of God, not that earthly sense, but the divine son of God, he called it a noxious exaggeration. But it is not an exaggeration, nor is it noxious, meaning toxic and really something bad and dangerous to believe in. This confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is a non-negotiable, essential doctrine of the Christian faith. The church would not exist without it. Christianity itself as a world religion would not exist without it. We see that in the passage that I read in Matthew 16, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christians, of course, debate what the rock is. Some say that the rock is the confession itself of Jesus being the Christ, the son of God. Others say it is Peter himself. But even if it's Peter, it is Peter as one in his role as an apostle who is confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. It is Peter as one to whom the Father has revealed this profound truth. So either way, Jesus here is plainly saying that this confession of his identity as the Son of God is the rock on which the church is built. Christ is building his church upon the foundation of himself as the Son of God. That's how important it is. I remember about 20 years ago uh, when I was in seminary, I was going out uh, with our church to do door-to-door -door evangelism. And uh, we paired up with others in the church. I was paired up with a dear Christian lady who loved the Lord. And I guess we had, maybe we had encountered somebody who was a Jehovah's Witness or we were thinking about the fact that maybe we look like Jehovah's Witnesses. Somehow that topic came up. And... Uh, we were talking about what do they believe? What do the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Well, they believe that Jesus is not the divine Son of God. Rather, he is more like an angel. Uh, he's, he's a creature. He's the most glorious creature that God made. In fact, he's the first creature that God made. He's the firstborn of all creation. They use that language from Colossians, but they interpret it to mean he's the firstborn creature, not the firstborn who's Lord over all creation, but the firstborn creature. And I'll never forget what this, this Christian lady said. She had such zeal for the gospel and such love for Christ. And, and she said, but that's so wrong. He's not an angel. He's the son of God. And, and I remember kind of scratching my head and thinking, why didn't she say, he's not an angel, he's God? That's what I would have said. That's what I would have expected. And that's what most Christians might have said. But no, she said, he's the son of God. As if that... The fact that he is the Son of God settled the truth of his deity, that he is not an angel, but he is very God of very God. She said it with such certainty and clarity as if to say it's inconceivable that he's a mere creature. He's the Son of God. And she was absolutely right to put it that way. Now, it is true that there are passages in the New Testament which say that Jesus is God. 
Although there aren't quite as many as you might think there are, the most famous one, of course, is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are a few others as well. Remember when Thomas uh, addressed the risen Jesus, and he bowed down and said, My Lord and my God. And there are a couple of passages also in Paul, although the grammar of each of them is debated and could be translated differently. I don't deny that the New Testament sometimes calls Jesus God in a handful of cases. However, the New Testament writers are very cautious about using that title. They refer to him far more frequently as the Son of God. This title is extremely common. It occurs 131 times in the New Testament. It's used by every New Testament writer except James and Jude. And over half of the occurrences are in the four Gospels, although it's also found in Paul's letters and in the other letters of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew, the very first Gospel, is very profound and very clear in this affirmation. There are five key events in the life of Jesus, according to Matthew, where this title comes up. We already looked at two of them. The first one was at his baptism. The voice from heaven, who is the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, then, in chapter 16, Peter confesses, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, Oh, no, 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 don't say that. Instead, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. So by referring to God as my Father, he's acknowledging that he is the Father's Son. Six days later, at the transfiguration, Jesus is up on the mountain and he is transformed and transfigured in this radiant light. And again, just as at his baptism, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that's three. There are two more and these two happen later on as you get to the end of the story when Jesus was on trial before the high priest. The high priest Caiaphas put Jesus under an oath and demanded, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, You have said so. He's acknowledging, Yes, that's correct. And as soon as he said this, the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. And the Sanhedrin condemned him to death and handed him over to the Roman authorities. And then again, also, at the end of the gospel, chapter later, the centurion who's at the scene of the crucifixion, when he sees the earthquake and he sees the way Jesus died, he, he was filled with awe and he said, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. In each case, the declaration of Jesus' divine sonship has the aura of being an utterly significant and decisive declaration. Many other titles are given to Jesus in the New Testament. He calls himself primarily the Son of Man, but he's also called the Son of David. He's called the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Lord, Firstborn, the Last Adam, and the list goes on. But none of them occur with such solemnity at these key moments in the earthly ministry of Jesus as the title Son of God. So I have two points that I want to uh, deal with today. First, what does this title Son of God mean and secondly, what difference does it make when we view Jesus as the Son of God? And I have three points under that second point. So first, what does the Son of God mean? Well, it means, very frankly, it means that he is fully divine. 
Even in human relationships, to say that someone is the son of someone implies that he has the same nature as his father. Now, the thing is, is that those who don't believe that Jesus is divine will often argue that this title, Son of God, is used in the Old Testament of created beings who are clearly not divine. There are a handful of verses, four or five, in the Old Testament where angels are called the sons of God. And angels are not God. They're not divine. They're creatures. Uh, There's also an example where the Davidic king is called God's son. We see this in the covenant that God made with King David. God promised David that his son Solomon would be his successor and that Solomon would build the temple. And then he said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And so in some sense, Solomon, a mere human being, would be a son of God. Apparently, the title son of God can be applied to a creature who has a special relationship with God or one whom God has set apart for a special task like Solomon as God's anointed king. So is that all the voice from heaven was saying when the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son? Is that all Jesus had in mind when he said, To Peter, you're right, I am the Son of God. Or to the high priest, it is true, yes, I am the Son of God. No. And there are several reasons for taking Son of God to mean something much more than merely a human Messiah or a human agent of God's purpose. There's really one very important passage where Jesus makes this very clear. You recall that uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees they got together to try to entangle Jesus with trick questions. You remember that? The Pharisees asked whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, asked a question about the resurrection, trying to make it look absurd. <clears throat> they were both trying to trap Jesus so they could bring charges against him. Well, after Jesus brilliantly answered their questions, what does he do? He turns the tables against them. It's in Matthew 22. He asks them, he says, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they responded, well, the Messiah, as we've been taught, as the Old Testament teaches, the Messiah will be the son of David. True, that's true. But then Jesus followed up with another question. He said, well, then how is it that David calls him Lord? And he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until you sit, until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so Jesus says, well, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Yes, he is the son of David, but that cannot be all he is for what ancestor calls his descendant Lord. There can be little doubt that what Jesus would have answered when he said, whose son is he? is that he is the Son of God. Jesus implies that his identity cannot be fully explained just by calling him the Son of David or a merely human Messiah. Now add to this the fact that not only does Jesus in that interesting dialogue with the Pharisees bring up this point, but add to that the fact that Jesus continually and repeatedly, even you might say characteristically, referred to God as his Father in a way that no merely human Messiah could have. There are around 50 times in the New Testament where Jesus refers to God as my Father or His Father. 
And there are 19 times where he directly addresses God as Father, directly praying to him or speaking to him. This form of address implied that Jesus claimed to have a unique and equal relationship to God. Jesus' distinctive appeal to God as his own Father shows a daring degree of intimacy with God. It indicates that he viewed himself as God's unique Son. It's true that he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, but he never taught us to say, My Father, the way he did. We can call God our Father only because of Jesus, who had that unique relationship to God and could call him my father. And the Jews understood this. They understood the significance of what Jesus was saying when he called God his father in this special way because to them it was blasphemy. Remember in John chapter 5? We read this in John 5. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So I'm doing these miracles and healing because my Father is doing it, and so I'm following in his footsteps. And as soon as he said that, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews were trying to kill Jesus because, in their minds, he had committed blasphemy by calling God his own father. And we see that same thing again. You might think, well, it's just the Gospel of John. What about the other Gospels? Well, we already mentioned the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They also record the same exact thing in his trial before the high priest. I adjure you by the living God, Caiaphas said, tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus acknowledged that he was. And he went on to claim that he would be exalted at God's right hand. Again, fulfilling Psalm 110, the same verse he had quoted before with the Pharisees, and saying that he will come in the clouds of heaven to judge his judges, to judge the ones that are standing there in judgment on him. And as soon as he said that, the high priest tore his clothes, he tore his robes, he has uttered blasphemy. And the scribes and the elders gave their judicial sentence. He deserves death. So don't let anybody say that it's just the Gospel of John that makes this high claim. The other Gospels do as well. Now here's something interesting. In the Jewish context of Jesus' day, claiming to be a Messiah, when you really weren't a Messiah, would not have brought about this charge of blasphemy worthy of death. And we know this because about 100 years after Jesus, there was a guy named Simon bar Kosiba who claimed to be the Messiah. And he was going to bring uh, all the Jews together and throw off the Roman Empire and set up the kingdom. And so you'd think, well, if claiming to be a Messiah when you're not is worthy of death, then how did the other rabbis respond to this guy? Well, there was one rabbi named Rabbi Akiba but he was the only rabbi that accepted what he said. All the other rabbis laughed at it and thought it was foolishness. The Talmud tells us that there was another rabbi who said to the other rabbi who did believe, he said, Akiba, grass will grow on your cheeks before the Messiah will come. So apparently there was something about that claim to be the Messiah that didn't provoke blasphemy, let's kill him, but just ridicule, just He's silly. And, and this other rabbi who believed him is also silly. 
and grass will grow in his cheeks because he's going to be in the grave and the grass will grow from his grave. But Jesus' claim to be the Messiah in the sense of being the Son of God did provoke this higher reaction of blasphemy. It was much worse than being a false Messiah. It was something blasphemous that urgently demanded that he be executed. So that's my first point then. What does this title Son of God mean? The New Testament and even the Gospels themselves make it very clear that it's not synonymous with being the Messiah. Yes, he's the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is he? He's the Son of God Messiah. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is to affirm that he is fully divine. I don't know if you guys saw this, but a few weeks ago, there was an interview by Stephen Colbert with a guy named Bart Ehrman, who used to be a Christian, fell away from his faith. Now he's an agnostic slash atheist. And he recently wrote a book in which he tries to prove that Jesus is not divine, and he tries to explain Jesus as being just an angel, similar to, the, to what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Stephen Colbert had him on his show, and of course you can't always tell whether he's in character or not, but he did say one thing that was interesting to Bart Ehrman. He said that calling Jesus the Son of God means that he's divine because the son of a duck is a duck, right? And so we know if, if, if you're calling Jesus the son of God, you're saying he is God. He is the son of God. He is divine just as his father is. Anyway, if you want, you can go Google it and look it up. It's a funny little episode. But Stephen Colbert is right in saying that. That's what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God. It's much more than just these other sons of God in the Old Testament, like angels or King David or King Solomon. It is a divine sonship. So what difference does it make then? That's the second point. What difference does it make when we view Jesus as the Son of God? Fred Sanders, who is a professor of theology at Biola, He's one of the leading evangelical writers on the subject of the Trinity today. And he wrote these really interesting words. He said this. He said, The temptation to gloss over the fact that Jesus was the Son in our hurry to get to the fact that he was God is a temptation to be resisted. I think that's a very helpful thing to say. Of course, we want to prove the deity of Christ. And so we're eager to get to that conclusion. But if we go straight to saying Jesus is God and we skip over the intermediate step of saying that he's the son of God, we'll miss some very important things about Jesus. There's a richness to seeing Jesus as the son of God that will be missing if we skip that step. There's a rich tapestry of theology here that you can't get if you just jump to saying Jesus is God in a blunt and flat way. And so what are some of the rich dimensions of the tapestry that is brought out well, first of all, so I have three points of what difference does it make. So the first difference it makes is this, is that it gives us the key to unlocking the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is difficult, admittedly, and it probably seems like a closed door to many, just some impenetrable, abstract theological thing that nobody can understand. How can God be one and three at the same time? It's just very hard to grasp. How can there be three persons in the Godhead and yet... Not three different gods, but one God. I believe that understanding Jesus as the Son of God gives us the key that unlocks that door. The New Testament uses the title Son to make clear both truths. There's the truth of 
the oneness of nature between the Father and the Son. They're both divine. But there's also the truth of the distinction of the persons between the Father and the Son. And of course, we also have to bring in the Holy Spirit here to make the whole doctrine of the Trinity make sense. That's another topic. But just starting off with the Father and the Son helps us to see how there can be oneness and yet distinction. The term Son, Son of God, captures both his, his, his essential identity with the Father as one who is divine just as the Father is, and yet also his distinction from the Father. He's not the Father. He's the Son of the Father. On the one hand, Jesus is the Son of God. That is, he is fully divine. As my friend said when we went out evangelizing, he's the Son of God. He's divine. As the true and eternal offspring of the Father, he is everything that the Father is. He shares the same divine nature as the Father, a nature which belongs to him because he is eternally begotten of the Father. Calling Jesus the Son of God does not make him any less divine than calling him God. He is the Son of God because he is the only begotten offspring of the Father and possesses the same divine nature as the Father. On the other hand, he is the Son of God. He is distinct from the Father. He is the Father's beloved Son. This is my son. The voice from heaven said twice, this is my beloved son. And so you see that distinction between the persons right there at the baptism and the transfiguration. This is why there are so few verses, I believe, that call Jesus God. Because the word God in the Bible almost always means God the Father. There are a few places where it doesn't just mean the Father, where it means something broader than that. But more often than not, God is being used to refer to the Father. And so it would not be appropriate to say that Jesus is God just flat out without explaining things because it might be misunderstood as if Jesus were God the Father. He's not. Once we see that Jesus is the divine Son of God, though, then we can see how he is both part of the divine being and yet distinct from God the Father as a separate person within the Godhead. So that's the first thing that helps us to understand. It's the key that unlocks this mystery of the Trinity. It gives us some window to try to get at what is going on in that doctrine. But there's a second benefit as well. It also, understanding Jesus as the Son of God, helps us to understand the Incarnation better. And so here we get at another aspect of this, right? That when we say that Jesus is God's Son we're not just talking about some eternal being in the bosom of the Godhead. We're talking about a man. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was born and who lived on earth and who was interacting with human beings like, as if he were another human being, and a man who died upon the cross. It is not as if the title Son of God is merely describing his deity apart from his humanity. When we call Jesus the Son of God, we're not just talking about his deity. We're also talking about his humanity. The earthly life of sonship that Jesus lived on earth when he obeyed his heavenly Father, when he resisted the temptation of the devil in the, in the wilderness, when he was in agony in the garden before going to the cross, when he went to the cross, that human being who lived as the Son of God on earth is a continuation of his heavenly sonship. There's no break between his heavenly sonship before he became a man 
and his earthly sonship as a man. You see this in the Gospels all the time. Let me give you an example from John chapter 17. This is the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's about to go to the cross and he prays. And he says, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here's the man Jesus calling God his Father, saying, Father, I'm about to go to the cross. It's practically done. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now listen to the next verse. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. So here's this man talking to the Father and saying, oh yeah, remember what it was like before I became a man? Remember that eternal glory that I had with you in your presence even before the world was created? See, how can he be a mere man if he's talking about that? He's talking about a time before creation even existed. But you see, there's no break. There's perfect continuity between the pre-incarnate state and the incarnate state of the Son. He's the same Son of God, whether before he becomes a man or after he becomes a man. He was the Father's loving and obedient Son before he became a man. And when he became a man, he didn't change or stop being the Father's Son. He just continued to be the Father's loving and obedient Son, but now as a man. Fred Sanders again writes, he says, We need to understand Jesus as the eternal Son who behaves like the Son on earth as he does in heaven and in time as he does in eternity. He was always the co-eternal, co-equal Son of God who always delighted in the presence of the Father. And when he took human nature to save us, he continued to be the co-eternal, co-equal Son of God still delighting in the presence of the Father. He lived out in his human life the exact same sonship that makes him who he is from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So when he said he was the Son of God and when he behaved like the Son of God, he was being himself in the new situation of the human existence he had been sent into the world to take up. End of the quote. That's an amazingly profound thing to say you see this this continuity of the sonship of Christ so clearly in the in the agony in the garden remember in the garden of Gethsemane consider who it is who prays out in agony father if it be possible let this cup pass from me this cup this cup of the wrath of God that he must drink and then he says nevertheless not as I will but as you will who is this person who is facing the prospect of death? And not just any death, but a shameful death, an accursed death, the death of bearing the weight of God's wrath and drinking the cup of the wrath of God. Is this a man who prays this way? Yes, in a very real sense, he must be a man, right? For only a man can die. Only a man can shrink from pain and shrink from death. Only a man can be in agony and fear and yet, he's not only a man. He is the Son of God, and that's why he willingly submits his will to the Father's will. Remember, not only in the, in the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup. But also in the Gospel of John, there's a parallel verse that seems to be echoing the same event, even though it doesn't say that it happened in the garden. 
In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It almost sounds like the very same thing as the garden when he's in agony. And so you see in, in John's perspective, in John's gospel, the same event is being looked at, but now from the point of view of him not being only a man, but also the Son of God. He came into the world as the eternal divine Son of God. He came into the world precisely for this moment that he might go to the cross and suffer for his own. He who comes to this hour is the Son, the same Son who is eternally pre-existing as the Son with the Father. And so the second point, the second richness of the tapestry that's brought out is that it gives us a better understanding of the Incarnation. Sometimes we, we shorten things. It's like when we want to say Jesus is God. Sometimes we shorten things a little bit too briefly and we say, especially during Christmas time, we say God became man. Well, that's a true statement, but what do we mean by that statement? Let's unpack that statement. Well, what we really mean is this. We mean that the eternal Son became man. The eternal Son of God became a human being and continued to be the Son of God as a human being. Paul puts it this way. Remember in Philippians 2, that famous hymn to Christ? Listen to how he puts it. He says this. He says, He took the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. That's a wonderful way to put it. He, the eternal Son of God, He took the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. And so that brings us then to the third thing that, that helps us to uh, get more light and more richness in our understanding of things. Looking at Jesus as the Son not only helps us to unlock the door to the Trinity, it not only helps us to understand the Incarnation better, but it also highlights for us the saving obedience of the Son. The saving obedience of the Son. When we think of Jesus as the Son of God rather than merely as God, it focuses our minds on his submission and obedience to the Father. And this is very clear in the ancient world, right? Because in the ancient world, a son was supposed to be obedient to his father. That's the essence of being a son. You obey your father unquestioningly, absolutely, perfectly. Now, in our modern way of thinking, we, we, when we think of fathers having sons, we don't really focus that much on the idea of obedience. We focus more on the, the nice side of it. We focus on the the feelings of love and friendship that fathers and sons have together. But in the ancient world, the focus was on the authority of the father over the son and the fact that the son had to do the father's will. Perhaps we can get at this a little bit clearer and more, maybe more closely in our own minds if we think of something that still lingers in our modern culture from the ancient culture to some degree. And that is the fact that very often, not all the time, but very often a son will go into the same line of work as his father doesn't always happen this way, but frequently enough to notice it. It seems to happen most frequently in two fields of life. One is politics, and the other is baseball. So think of George W. Bush. He was the 43rd president, but he was the son of George H. W. Bush, who was the 41st president. And so he went into the same line of work as his dad. It's almost as if there was something in the genes or something in the nurturing and the upbringing that led to that. 
In baseball, it happens even more frequently. I was looking it up online, and there's just this tremendous list of father-son pairs in baseball. Ken Griffey Sr., Ken Griffey Jr., Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn Jr. There's even one case where it goes on for three generations. Sammy Hairston, Jerry Hairston Sr., and Jerry Hairston Jr. But in the ancient world, this was much, much more common. It was assumed that you would follow in your father's line of work. It was almost always the case that if your father was a merchant, you were a merchant. If your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your father worked with his hands as a craftsman, then you followed your father around in the workshop from a very young age, picking up the skills from your father, watching him and directly learning from him and imitating him. You shadowed your father every day. And as you got older, you would take on more and more responsibilities in your father's business until the day when he was too old and you took over completely. Well, the Gospel of John says something very similar about Jesus and his relationship to the Father. The Gospel of John tells us, and Jesus himself tells us, that he did nothing and said nothing but what he learned from his Father. John 5.19 Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus' whole earthly life was characterized by perfect obedience to his Father. And he obeyed in perfect submission until the very end. As Paul says, he was obedient to the point of death. His death was the culmination of his obedience as son. And because of his perfect obedience, the Father was pleased with his beloved son. And that is why he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was God's stamp of approval upon his son. He said it at the baptism, he said it at the transfiguration, but then in effect he said it again when he raised him from the dead. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The author of Hebrew even says that Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. He resisted the temptations of the devil as he pursued the will of his heavenly father, not deviating to the right hand or to the left, but walking straight down the path of humiliation down, down to the shameful cross. And he did all of this as the Son of God incarnate. And he did all of this, why? To fulfill the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? It was to save us through the work of his Son and to restore us to a right relationship with the Father. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying that that's what gives him energy every day. Just like food, right? You need your food to give you energy. That's what motivates him. That's what energizes him every day is to do the will of his Father. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As the Father's obedient son, he came to do the will of his Father. And that will was to offer himself as a ransom for sinners, bearing the load of our guilt suffering the wrath that we deserved, that we might be saved, forgiven, redeemed, and restored to a right relationship with God. When you see a cross like the one that's hanging up here behind me, or when you read in the Gospels about the crucifixion of Jesus, think about the Son. Think that this is the Son obeying His Father. Think of the cross itself as the pinnacle of his sonship. Thank God for the obedient son 
the one of whom the Father said that he was well pleased. That includes his pleasure in the saving significance of the obedience of his son. The Father takes pleasure in his son's willing suffering for us on the cross. God delights in his son's saving obedience. Why? Because the Father was the one who planned it all from the beginning. The Father was the one who elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Father is the one who ordained this plan of salvation that his son should come and become a man and suffer for us. The Father is the one who planned our salvation. And so when he sees the obedience of his son in fulfilling that salvation, he delights. He delights in his son's obedience. He delights in the result of that obedience and what his son's obedience secured, which is the salvation of all of the elect, all of God's people, redeemed by the blood of his son. So what difference does it make to think of Jesus as the son of God? First, it gives us the key to unlocking the doctrine of the Trinity. Second, it helps us to understand the incarnation better as the Son of God becoming man. And third, it highlights for us the saving obedience of the Son. And it shows us that the cross itself is the pinnacle of his sonship. Is the church's confession that Jesus is God's divine Son a noxious exaggeration? As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, no. It is the very heart of our faith. The heart of our faith is the saving cross of Christ. And on the cross hung not a mere man nor an angel, but the eternal Son of God incarnate, obedient to his Father to the point of death. This is not an exaggeration. We glory in the cross of Christ our Savior. We glory in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your beloved Son. Thank you that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. And how we thank you that you have exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that we might bow the knee to him and confess him and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.